This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr., editor and writer for the Peninsula Pulse, and today I'm joined by Dave Amos, a city planning professor by day and a city planning YouTuber by night. Amos is a net member of the Cal Poly City and Regional Planning Department and the man behind City Beautiful, a YouTube channel that breaks down complex city and town planning issues into short, digestible segments for the rest of us. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome to have you. I've been looking forward to chatting with you for some time. If Dave's name is at all familiar to some of our listeners, it's because he is a, he's from Sturgeon Bay. And Dave, are you a, a, like a native of Sturgeon Bay? Did you graduate from Sturgeon Bay High School? What's your background here in relationship to Door County? Yeah, I was born and raised in Sturgeon Bay. Uh, class of 01, Sturgeon Bay High School. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my, when I, back then, I was known primarily for my uh, cross-country running exploits. <laughs> That's about the, the only time I make the papers. <laughs> yeah, that was your claim to fame. Um, yes. Mine was uh, being on the Sevastopol Gibraltar football team that broke a 10-year losing streak. So that's that was our big claim to fame. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, I, I don't think Door County teams in general have had strong football programs, at least not when I was there. So that's, that's an accomplishment. Certainly not my football team. <laughs> but it was the great thing about losing for 10 years is when you finally do win, it's like winning the Super Bowl. So you only have to that's do right. it once to get like to feel great about yourself. Um, nice. So you grew up in Sturgeon Bay and not exactly a, you know, metropolis. And you end up getting interested in urban planning. And this is one, yeah, Nate Bell, the uh, village trustee in the village of Sister Bay, he's the one who turned me on to your YouTube channel. And mm-hmm. I, I've always been kind of a, a little bit of a geek about urban and, and city planning and things we can learn from it for our small towns and villages in Door County. And I just started diving into everything you've been doing. And I think you, you do an incredible job of taking what are sometimes mundane <laughs> things that a lot of people don't want to talk about zoning. It's like the number one way to mm-hmm. turn someone off from reading an article I write is put the word zoning in it, <laughs> but it really does guide a lot of the problems or opportunities that we have. And you, you dive into that and so many other things. How did you end up so interested in, in this work? Yeah. So I, I was lucky. Um, I had some great teachers at Sturgeon Bay high school. Um, and one of them gave me a book on, on, it's called Natural Capitalism, and it was, a, it was a book about sustainability, essentially. And it had a chapter about Curitiba, Brazil. So it's a city in Brazil, and it was it's well known for being incredibly forward-thinking around things like transportation and land use. And basically, the the leadership of that city took you know what was you know, kind of a, a lower income. Uh, Latin American city and turn it into something that was really amazing and a model for the rest of the world. And when I read that when I was 17, I was like, wow, I didn't even really think about this as a profession, but it's an opportunity to, you know, change the daily lives of people in a city for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it seems like a really powerful thing. Like, you know, politics in a lot of ways and, and sort of national policy seems really sort of abstract, but you know, they just went and like redid a bus system and now their people's lives are better and they're able to get to work faster and things like that. So that wow. sort of tangible positive of change was really spoke to me as a 17 year old and it does still today so from there i decided well um maybe this is something i want to do so i went and i, I got a degree in city planning uh, at cornell university after that so what was your path to then starting a youtube channel and and finding a kind of, kind of great following with that yeah so when i was um after i got my master's degree uh, also in planning and also in architecture i um went and became a a, a land use planner so i was a consultant land use planner in uh, california and sacramento and uh, i was writing long-range plans for cities and often i would have to speak with boards and commissions and lay people people who aren't familiar with planning and and brief them on a topic right like okay, we're going to be talking to you now about complete streets or healthy communities. And they didn't really know what those topics were all about. So I would have to go up mm-hmm. and give like a 20 minute presentation to them about these <laughs> issues. And I wished this was back in like 2013, 2014, uh, that there was just a YouTube video I could show them <laughs> about all this stuff and make my job easier. Right. Like, like why aren't there, why isn't there no video, you know, YouTube channel just producing videos that I could use like this. Uh, so that stuck with me in the back of my mind. And then I went back uh, to get a PhD in city planning so I could 
uh, be a professor. And after teaching intro to city planning for undergraduates, um, I realized that a lot of the content I had just produced uh, as a lecturer uh, would be useful in video format. It would sort of fill that gap that I had recognized a few years earlier. So I gave it a shot. I knew nothing about making videos. It took me four months to make my first video. Uh, and it's, you know, it was a rough go, but, um, you know, I made a commitment. I thought this, this seems like it could be a fun thing. something I enjoy doing. So I'm going to make one video every calendar month. That's my goal. Like if okay. I can just produce one video a month and I've been doing that now for almost five years, I've never missed a month. Wow. <laughs> uh, and you just kind of, it's just all about sticking with it. And that's what I tried to do. And these things are roughly what like generally like the six to 12, 12 minutes on the long side, I think. Right. Yeah. More or less. Yep. So you can take like a, a very, it's nice because you can go into it and say like, I may not be in like interested in watching an hour and a half lecture on all the theories behind like a comprehensive plan or something, but I can go, hop on here and I can see like, Hey, why do cul-de-sacs come about? <laughs> like, well, how did we end up using these? Why, why do cities use grids? Or, um, I think you have one called, was it like the, the most miserable city in America or something like that? Um, yeah. Diff different topics where you, you, you don't just say like, Hey, this city stinks. It's here. Are, here's what's created issues in this city, or at least some of them, you know, they something you learn doing this a long time is there's no easy answer for most of the things. There's no like one size fits all. Like here's what parking requirements should be in every town all across America, every city here, like cities are different. Needs are different. Um, but that's what I love about what you have done is I, I would really urge any, anybody on a plan commission, anybody on a village board, um, anybody interested in this at, at, in participating in their local government at all. Like this stuff is really informative in, in terms of, not just necessarily like what you have to do, but what your options might be. Yeah, exactly. The, the, this problem of generalizability it's called. So, you know, if something works in one city, will it work in another city? Now I'm, I'm a researcher as well. And this is a very frustrating thing, uh, because you want like the results of your study to also work elsewhere, like to prove <laughs> that you're right. But it's so true that every city is so different that it makes it challenging to do that. But that's what also makes it so fascinating as a profession. Um, you know, every city is so unique. And then uh, that means that sometimes these solutions have to be uh, customized to the to the uh, city. So yeah, it's a good and bad. There's cultural things that yeah. play when you have bike lanes are certain places you put in a bike lane and the culture is to bike and use bicycles as transportation. So they get a ton of use and they work mm, fabulously. And then in another town where there is no bike culture, you can put beautiful bike lanes in, but unless you um, do some things to, to inspire people to, to use a bicycle, it's still, you're just putting in an empty lane. Yeah, it's true. And I, I will say though, that on the topic of bike culture, like everywhere can have bike culture. Yes, um, and I sure. think it, but it, it does take a sustained effort. I agree. Uh, I'm so impressed by cities like Minneapolis, right? Like who the very similar climate to Wisconsin and they have an incredible bike culture and they have what's called Viking right. biking or Viking in the snow. They they'll, they're people who do it all year round. Right. And the, so I always point to that when people say, Oh, you know, you're in California, like biking there is great because the weather is always great. And I mean, weather is good here. And I agree that it's easier, but like there, <laughs> there are people who can do it year round. Right. So <laughs> absolutely. There's um, a guy actually in Sturgeon Bay, uh, Carl Morrison, who has biked to work something like 1500 consecutive days from the Sevastopol Township to Hatco, I believe is where he works down in Sturgeon Bay, does it in snowstorms and everything. So you can do it even in Door County, even without bike lanes, you can bike to work. That's amazing. I, I mean, I think we can do a lot to, I want to make his life easier, right? Like yeah. we, we, we can do things to like add those bike lanes, make sure they're plowed. Right. Um, you know, that's fascinating too, is cities that have adopted a bike culture, but are in snowy climates, you'll see they have snow plows for bike lanes and sidewalks and things. Yes. And they, they are often out first. Uh, because those cities believe that the most vulnerable road users are people on foot and people on bikes and they should get first priority. Um, so I love it's, that. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's great. I mean, I think also emergency vehicles get some priority. So yeah. I, I'm not saying that we should not plow the roads for, for uh, cars either, but um, it's, it's, you know, a lot of it's about priority and, and make sure that they're, they have that priority. I spent about six years living in Chicago and people are always shocked when they, cause people generally say like, Oh, Door County is a wonderful place to bike. And I put on cycling events. I help organize them. And, mm -hmm. but I would not say Door County is necessarily great for biking. I felt safer bicycling on the streets of Chicago than I do here because 
Mm. People are used to seeing bikes. They treat them as part of transportation. There are tons of protected bike lanes, many, many miles. And even over the last 10 years, they've probably spent close to $100 million on cycling infrastructure. They put a huge flyover over uh, the river in Chicago. They yep. greatly expanded the, the Lakeshore bike path. And cycling, again, people do it all year round. There are actually cycling traffic jams on Milwaukee Avenue at times, which I love to see because you can see a cycling traffic jam with 80 people on bikes is much smaller than 80 people in their own individual cars. Yeah. And it's if, so you touch on sort of the safety, you feel safer in Chicago, partly because of the infrastructure, which is absolutely true. Like studies have shown over and over again, dedicated bike infrastructure, separated, protected bike infrastructure uh, leads to more people biking, especially uh, people with kids, women, uh, and anybody else who feels you know, particularly nervous. Also, uh, Chicago has a, has advantage of something called safety in numbers, the safety in numbers hypothesis, which right. like makes total sense that if there's a lot of people biking, it's actually safer because cars, people, drivers know to look out for vehicles or sorry, know to look out for, uh, bikes, right? Like you're just sort of in the habit of looking for them that you're used to seeing them on the bike lane on the, you know, on the, on your uh, right side. So we make a right turn, you know, to look to make sure you're not yeah. going to hit a cyclist. Right. But in a place like, um, you know, Sturgeon Bay where there aren't any bike lanes, uh, or very few bike lanes, uh, drivers just are not habituated to that motion right. of sort of like checking for that. Um, so yeah, so safety numbers is absolutely true. And the more people who cycle, the more safe it gets for everyone. When I first moved to Chicago, the first time I almost actually hit a cyclist because I wasn't used to checking for them, I was like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to learn to find the different parking signs that I'm supposed to find to know whether where it's legal to park, then also keep an eye on all the traffic and also keep an eye on make a head check for a cyclist. And it's amazing. Like within a couple of weeks, it was just natural. It was just, you didn't think about it. You're, and now I, I still do that here in Door County, even though I've been here for four and a half years, I haven't lost that habit, but it just, it yeah, happens and, pretty quickly if you're used to checking for it. And those habits also make you subtly drive a little bit slower, um, yes. which is a good thing as well. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cause like uh, what happens is drivers sort of feel this stress associated with having to make sure right at every intersection that make sure there's not pedestrians, there's not bikes. Like there's a lot more happening. And what that does is it makes you slow down and actually makes things safer, even though you are feeling less safe as a driver in some ways, right? You're like, Oh my gosh, like I can hit anybody at any time, but then you slow down, you do those, make those checks and you are a more aware driver. So uh, one important thing that we need to do on our roadways is actually make drivers feel less comfortable uh, because when the drivers are too comfortable, that's when accidents happen. Well, I love that you, this is a, a great segue into something that you, some of your videos are about is mm -hmm. it's not just about putting a speed limit sign up in terms of how you control traffic, how you make streets safer for pedestrians and cyclists. We generally in this country over time came to the conclusion that we were going to design our roads to optimize the speed of the vehicle, to optimize the speed of the most lethal user of the road, which, and I'm part of that. I am a driver, right? I use a car a lot. But yeah. Most of us are, right? We are the ones behind the 2,500 to 4,000 pound piece of metal. And we like, as a driver, you have a greater responsibility, but we've tended to create our roads in a way that makes it as easy as possible to go as fast as possible. Can you explain that in much better terms than I can about what, how that's, put into practice and what it means for, you know, our neighbor, what it does to our neighborhoods and things like that. Yeah. So, uh, so speed limits are posted and they're generally streets are generally designed around the 80% speed. So they basically say 80% of drivers uh, travel below the speed and that's the speed limit, which means that 20% of people will sort of naturally feel like they can go faster than that. Um, <laughs> so, so that's an interesting thing. Like there's sort of like an, an admission from the get go that speed limits are sort of designed, uh, you know, not at the right place. Also, yeah, so speed limits uh, really do nothing, <laughs> essentially, to controlling people's speeds. People sort of have this innate sense of how fast they should go on a road based on how it's designed, right? Like you sort of can do this sort of mental check about how, how, how safe you feel. And things like narrowing the street, having parked cars, um, you know, make you feel like you can't go as fast because you can sort of feel that friction kind of going by you. Sure. While when you're on a freeway, when it's a 12 foot wide um, lane, 13 foot wide lane, as opposed to a 10 foot wide lane in a, in a city street, uh, you just feel like you can go much faster, right? Like there's these, mm -hmm. these ways that we sort of mentally can do that, make it sort of make you feel what the appropriate speed is. The unfortunate thing is that we are designing streets in the, in the U S city streets, according to some highway principles. Uh, and the idea here is that we should really be thinking about how to, again, narrow stress drivers out a little bit, make them feel like they can't go as fast as they normally do. How is this being that idea being accepted? Like, do you, 
I mean, uh, certainly up here, when I go to a public meeting, there are a lot of people pushing for wider streets. You have people who think inherently, it's, it's like maybe one of those myths that we have is that wider is safer, wider p- driving lanes. Um, even, you know, you'll get a, a, a fire chief will, and, and, and a fire chief usually wins the day in a meeting, right? So a fire chief yep. will say, well, we need wider streets so we can get our trucks through. And then I think, well, there are massive cities with very narrow streets that still seem to move fire trucks through. And I, I'm sure it's definitely easier, but should we necessarily design our cities and our streets around like the, the optimal way for say like those emergency vehicles or the biggest vehicles or the fastest vehicles um, or even like our busiest days? Should we design around those the whole year around those couple of instances or, or events in a year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's again, it's who are we designing the street to be safe for and what are the actual risks, right? So the fire marshal, you're right. The fire marshal often wins the day in an argument because they are sort of the voice of emergency services. And um, you're right. They drive big trucks and they feel safer, certainly going at fast speeds in a big truck with a wide road. Right. Um, And they will point to things like, well, we don't want everyone's, uh, fire insurance premiums to go up because we can't mm-hmm. get the truck there at a certain amount of time, right? Like they need to sort of guarantee a certain amount of fire service at a certain time period. Uh, but, you know, there have been, again, studies shown that you can narrow streets, you can have windier streets uh, and still get trucks in places in a reasonable amount of time. It's it's sort of a lazy argument at this point to say we have big trucks, we need wide roads. It's been shown that like, you know, you can get trucks there just as fine on a, on a narrower street uh, within a sort of an acceptable amount of time. And unfortunately, in some cases, it's taken uh, like local activists and things to actually set up cones in a parking lot and prove that they're right. <laughs> like they have to like go and, and make sure, make the fire department drive their trucks to see that actually you can handle a narrower street. Um, and I think drivers, of course, they want wider streets. Again, it's sort of the highway effect, right? You feel comfortable going faster on a, on a highway than you do on a local street. Yeah. Um, and, and having a clear zone where, you know, you feel like you're not going to hit a tree or something does it, it does sort of affect you and make you, uh, you know, make a collision or uh, you going off the road less deadly. Um, but, you know, going at fast speeds also makes it more deadly for people on uh, on a bike or a pedestrian. And those people are m- much more likely to die in a crash. Like if you hit another car or you hit a pole or something and you're in a car, you have airbags, you have steel protecting you. Hmm. Uh, but those folks uh, on foot or on a bike do not. And. Um, you know, if you look at the overall statistics of people dying in a fire versus people dying on roadways, uh, especially pedestrians and cyclists, the most vulnerable people are, are, the, are the pedestrians and cyclists. So that's really what we should be prioritizing. That's an interesting yeah. comparison there, too. Yeah. So if we're talking safety overall, right, we need to be thinking about, you know, the most vulnerable users. Yeah. If you take yourself out of those silos and took look at it as a, as a holistic way, you also talk a little bit. You have a great episode on trees. And this is something that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife will probably roll her eyes out. She probably gets sick of me talking about trees and where we could plant them and, and how we could use them to make better streets and, and better downtowns and things like that. Pretty fascinating, all the different ways that trees contribute to the health of a community, whether it be aesthetically, um, environmentally, with uh, it's a question of, of carbon, uh, of CO2, and then um, even like you said, like kind of traffic calming. The, the presence of trees makes people drive slower and, and be a little more safe. Maybe talk a little bit about that because you have that great episode of like five reasons you love trees in urban design. Yeah, so the there's this guy, Alan Jacobs, who used to be the planning commissioner for the city of San, uh, sorry, city of San Francisco. And he wrote this amazing book called Great Streets. And he said in it, the one thing that you can do uh, to most improve a street is simply add trees because they do so much for uh, a street and they, they're sort of multifaceted uh, Swiss army knives of, of making streets better. Uh, first of all, yes, they provide shade, which reduces what's called the urban heat Island effect where like sunlight hits pavement and it gets absorbed and radiates back out and makes cities hotter than the surrounding countryside. But trees uh, make that uh, less likely to occur and make it cooler. Uh, obviously they just provide shade. It makes it much more comfortable to walk around. Um, they yeah clean, the air locally um, so they do actually reduce air pollution uh, at the very local micro levels Um, and yeah they effectively narrow the street like I said it sort of creates that friction on the side of the road you feel more contained Uh, it's sort of the opposite again of that that highway feel and it makes people psychologically want to drive slower so for all those reasons I mean like there's no better bang for your buck in terms of improving a street than adding a, a canopy of street trees 
Yeah, I was uh, just talking about this with somebody earlier today, and you really have to start thinking of trees the same way you do. They're, they're always an afterthought in so many ways, and, and the greenery is an afterthought. And it's not thought of the same way as the concrete, the pavement, the stud walls of a building. And really, the trees can create that built environment for you, last a heck of a long time, and, and provide so many other things if you plant them right and, and plant the right ones. You also mentioned, and I think this is important up here as we see the emerald ash borer rip its way through Door County mm -hmm. and, and all of North America, um, you, you're seeing a lot of trees being lost in, in Door County's downtowns and in our state parks. Yeah. You, you talk about how villages and communities need to be thinking about like the variety of the species and the variety of the ages of your trees because some are just going to die. And just because one died doesn't mean you go, well, we should just not worry about trees because they die anyway. It means, yeah, some die. And you have to um, have like a, a staggered approach to that. And I think that when, when I saw that in your video, I was like, oh man, countywide, we should actually approach this as ha having like a municipal nursery <laughs> to kind of have this flow constantly going, especially as I see... I drive through these towns and the village of Ephraim lost a bunch of trees in the last couple of years and it basically ripped away that tree canopy in one fell swoop. Yeah. So my, my dad is actually a horticulturist. He uh, has a plant nursery in Door County. Uh, so my <laughs> whole life I've been hearing about tree diversity and how you don't want to plant one single tree for just this reason because he's very attuned to, to tree diseases. So of course, when I was visiting in uh, August, he consistently pointed out the emerald ash borer kind of loss, right? I mean, it is incredibly prevalent in Door County right now. Um, yeah. I mean, so I, I think that um, a truly great urban forester has a huge impact on a city, right? Somebody who's making sure that there's that appropriate tree diversity and tr trees are selected to be really great uh, for that environment, right? Street trees are a very specific environment and there's certain trees that work better, um, right? You want one with a, a nice canopy, one that doesn't have low branches, um, ideally ones that don't drop as many, you know, as many seeds and things, right? Cause you don't want it gumming up sidewalks and things mm -hmm. or cars parked underneath it. Um, you know, so selecting the right trees, but also then a diversity of trees. So if something comes through, it doesn't destroy the whole canopy is really important. So I'm no expert. Uh, my dad is more of an expert. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to leave it, you know, leave it that to him. But, um, yeah, it's really, really important. I mean, well, trees, you're, you're right. Trees are essentially a piece of urban infrastructure, green infrastructure, um, we call it. Uh, that's, you know, just as important as the gray infrastructure or the concrete. Yeah, and I, I've been harping on this a lot lately because I know that the village of Egg Harbor, as they redo their highway, their plan is to to basically clear cut all the, all the trees that they planted 30 years ago that have created sort of a, a little bit of a canopy. They're finally starting to mature. And now their, their plan is to cut them all down. And um, I'd argue like, okay, you, you probably can't save all of them just based on like losing the root structure. But if you put in some effort to save a few key ones, you can do a lot to hide development, um, create some canopy, break up the monotony of the concrete, which you do see in some communities where you ride down a street and all you see is the tops of cars and the concrete between the sidewalks and the, the pavement. So that's a little uh, soapbox I've been standing on lately. And uh, I actually <laughs> ran into uh, another gentleman who does some great stuff with trees up here named Tom Wolf this morning. And he actually had some great thoughts on how you plant trees and care for them to make sure they survive as, or give them the best shot to. So I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. So when you, when you design a highway, you should really when you're doing these big projects, like when the state comes in, you only get to do that once every 20 or 30 years. So it's important to think about that and, and do your best to either preserve the trees that you have in those areas or find a way to plant new ones that are of a maturity level, even if you spend more on it. I mean, it's funny, we spend a ton per like every 20 feet of pavement. And then we think of mm -hmm. the, the tree as something we should do on the cheap. And the tree is actually going to do much more for that public space and that built environment. Yeah, there's, I mean, I don't know if, Door County has this policy, but in other cities I've been to, they have policies where if they're going to take out a tree, they have to post ahead of time uh, that that's going to happen. And a lot of the times that is enough to rally neighbors and things to huh. basically oppose the tree removal. Um, you know, I know some it, people it, that again, you probably just sparked an idea in their heads, Dave. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's, I don't know the origin of the law those laws exactly but i gotta imagine it's from folks who you know again really appreciate trees and understood that psychological effect of uh, giving people a fair warning that that tree is gonna go um because i don't know i i personally when i was in sacramento there was a tree 
uh, right across the street from me that provided shade to the entire intersection. I mean, it was what I saw out my window. You sort of get attached to these trees. And yeah. if I had ever found out that that tree was going to get cut down, I mean, I would have raised a stink probably more than like <laughs> almost any other urban issue because, you know, that it was a, such a defining feature of my sort of uh, environment, you know? Yeah. So, so just even the fair warning. And I think that some cities, I, I don't want to speak... I, again, I'm not an expert in this area of urban policy, but I think that there can be sort of recourse if people, um, you know, were to find out that a tree was removed. There might be a public hearing or something like there. Are, mm. You can some places like a raise ordinance for a historic building. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's again, it's it's a sign of respect for the trees, which I really appreciate because again, it's acknowledging what they do for us and that we should sort of be very careful uh, when we think about removal. And you know, that takes me to another topic is walkability. And I think when you think about walkability, some people think that is just like having a sidewalk or, or it means having a super wide sidewalk, um, having straight lines or whatever it might be. Like what to you is a walkable neighborhood? I think some of your videos you've shown that's a lot more than just like just that sidewalk. Yeah. So, I mean, the definition of walkability I enjoy, I mean, there's many is, uh, walkability is just to the extent to which the built environment promotes walking. And of course, how can the built environment promote walking, right? Is the next question. Uh, and there's lots of different dimensions of walkability. So one is like destination accessibility. Are there lots of places where you'd want to go on foot and can you get there on foot safely? Uh, and safety is another big one. Safety from crime. Like, do you, are you feel like if you're going to be walking, you're getting mugged. I mean, Door County, probably not. Uh, but you know, <laughs> other places that might be a concern, uh, but traffic safety is the other sort of element of that safety, right? Do you feel like you're going to get hit by a car? And I mean, I walked, I was recently walking around fish Creek and in the height of tourist season, like if you step off a curb, like it's a little bit like taking your life in your own hands because you don't know if you, you know, sometimes cars are going a little too fast on 42 and you know, you never know what's going to happen. So like there is this sort of safety element. Um, but then there's, yeah, like how attractive is the walk? Uh, I always say like, it's, if you were asked to walk a mile down a you know, a terrible suburban arterial street, it's going to feel like, you know, feel like longer than an hour, right? Like if you take a mile, it's going to feel like you're there forever. But, you know, walking a mile in a charming, you know, a charming downtown, I mean, strolling through Third Avenue and Sturgeon Bay, like you, you can go take, make that walk very easily because it's a very mm -hmm. nice, pleasant pedestrian scale environment. So there's just so many dimensions to walkability. Uh, you're right, not just sidewalks. I mean, though, I will say, high quality sidewalks are a key component. Uh, it, it addresses some of that safety, some of that destination accessibility uh, and all those dimensions. And, and in general, wider is better to a certain extent. Um, you can do a lot with a narrow sidewalk. I always prefer at least having a sidewalk where two people can pass comfortably or two people can be walking side by side and having a conversation. That to me is a mm. great test. Better yet in a downtown area um, is two people can have a conversation going one way, two people can have a conversation going the other way and there's not an interruption in flow. Sure. Um, but that's, that's, you know, again, it's, it's all context and it's all sort of, you know, uh, in smaller villages that may not be possible. Right. Right. And it's something else you talked about is just having like that separation from the roadway in a lot of ways. And a lot of the things oh, yeah. I've read mm -hmm. is just having some sort of greenery or tree line or something that, that breaks up the, the roadway from the, the sidewalk itself. Mm -hmm. And some communities do that very well. Sister Bay, when they redid their highway basically has none of that. It just basically goes road to parking, to curb, to sidewalk right there. And that's, Mm -hmm. kind of a constraint of, of what they, the space they had to work with. But um, if you ideally, I think you'd want to put that strip in, but maintenance departments and parks departments tend to tell you they don't want to mow that little strip of grass in there. They don't want to maintain those plants. They don't want to maintain the greenery or worry about the trees and things. So they will say, well, just put concrete over it. And you've seen that in little spots in Bailey's Harbor and, and Fish Creek is getting rid of those little strips in favor of the ease of just going down a straight line and plowing the, the sidewalk. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's again, it's all context, right? So a green strip of grass makes a lot of sense in smaller towns and in like suburban environments or like like residential environments. I think you can make the case for concrete in, again, downtown areas where space is at a premium and walking mm -hmm. space is important, though I would not omit certainly would not omit trees, right? We've talked about why trees are great. So trees are there always. Um, the, 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 the planted buffer strip, as we call it in the planning lingo, <laughs> um, 
it has its sort of contextual uses um, and it just depends on where. So <laughs> that's where I fall on that. So, and I agree with you also that of course, like the maintenance folks should not be the ones writing the policy for how to do this. I mean, they should be consulted, um, but making things easier to maintain um, when it comes to things as critical as, as trees or walking um, is, is, they should not be given the final say. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> Another thing that in Door County, and, and you've probably, I don't know how much you, you stay in touch with things on a, a day-to-day basis, but clearly we're under a, a wave of development pressure up here. In the real estate market is driving that. Uh, vacation rental by owner sites are, are driving some of that. And just, you know, Door County has become more popular. That pressure is putting a lot of pressure on these plan commissions and small village. I mean, Ephraim's a town of about 200 people. Egg Harbor is a town of about 200 people. That's not a lot of adults to draw from to serve on your committees. And then you sit in these plan commission meetings where there is a level of of money at stake and and pressure and and lawyers coming to those meetings now that that I really feel for the people who serve in those roles because it's much different than even 10 years ago when I, I might write about one development every month maybe. <laughs> and now it seems like every plan commission meeting is a five-hour slugfest of so many things that um, these are not planning experts. These are not people who have taken even yeah. planning courses. So like, I, I feel you when you said like, yeah, I, I got tired of trying to explain this all every meeting to give the, like a, the basic level course. So, um, hopefully some of these lessons could kind of prime the pump for, for, for some of these things. Yeah. And the planning commission folks and the folks who go to these meetings, the community members, they are like true unsung heroes because they don't get a lot of sort of press and a lot of it's, and what they do is not always positive. And I understand that they're trying to do the best uh, from their, for their communities. And you're right. There's a certain amount of influence, especially folks that have a lot of money and it's hard to counteract that. Um, so yeah, you're right on the money there. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I wish them the best. And I think that you're also right that Door County, I think, is in a bit of a it's at an inflection point. I think um, the the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic seems from what I, what I understand is actually in some ways helped Door County because those international trips are no longer possible. So people For are sure. driving up up the county now. Um, and, and who knows? This may be a, a long lasting trend. So, yeah, I. I I mean, development can be good. I mean, right? Like, and we're sort of, you want there to be a larger pool of folks coming to the county and supporting local businesses and creating jobs. Like, that's, I get it. Um, but, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a land use planner uh, by, by trade. So um, I get very concerned about sort of the use of land and the fact that a land, especially in a peninsula, is a, is a, a finite resource. <laughs> Yeah. Right. There's only so much land there and you can't really expand further. <laughs> There's water. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in some ways you're very, it's a very finite resource and you're very hemmed in. Um, so being good stewards of that land is, is, you know, at even greater importance for folks in Door County. When you came back and, and you, in any return visits the last couple of years, when you mm-hmm. go around the County or go around Sturgeon Bay, your hometown, wh- what do you think from a, from a planning perspective and from your expertise perspective, what do you think are some of the examples of things we're doing right? That communities are like the improvements, you know, Door County in many ways has changed a great deal in the 20 years since you graduated from Sturgeon Bay High School. So what do you see now that you have like this, you know, visits and, and examples of so many different cities that have done cool things. What are we doing right? Yeah. So, I mean, I spend most of my time in Sturgeon Bay. That's where my folks are. So, uh, so I, I think that's where I sort of, and my Sturgeon Bay's changed detailed. a lot. That's a, that's a yeah, huge it transformation. Has. Yeah, it, totally. I mean, I was t- totally psyched to see, um, the multifamily housing built across from the Maritime Museum on the West side. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a cool project. Um, in general, I feel like I've, I saw more new multifamily housing than I thought I would see, which is great. Uh, multifamily housing, especially here in California, is like literally code for uh, lower income housing, which is important. It's code for that up for here too. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. So it's, uh, it's great to see housing for all income groups. Um, and that's particularly important in an economy like Door County is where you get a lot of like sort of uh, lower wage labor through the tourism industry. So that's great to see. I was really happy about that. Um, I got to go to downtown, um, uh, downtown Sturgeon Bay and see it when they close off the street to have a, a public market. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was fun. Uh, that's something that didn't happen 20 years ago. Um, and I don't know, in general, I would say like, I mean, it has changed a lot, but in it's, I, I sort of, I see it sort of, I generally visit every year. Uh, I sort of missed a couple of years during the pandemic. 
Um, but how I sort of get these snapshots. So I do get to sort of see the change happening, but I will say in a lot of ways, Sturgeon Bay hasn't changed in a, in a, in a good way. Like it's still, um, downtown still feels like a good mix of like tourist and local serving businesses. Like I'm so happy that like Ace Hardware is still there, like serving the local community, things like that. Um, you know, that hasn't disappeared. I was sad to see Yonkers go. Um, but the fact that there's like, you know, local businesses trying to populate that from like the Jefferson street shops, right. that was kind of cool. So like the, the, they're doing some stuff here, like that and they're just sort of keeping the the core of what makes Sturgeon Bay Sturgeon Bay there um and that was really cool I think the biggest changes I'm sort of seeing countywide is just like you're starting to see more development happening like on Highway 42 right like right. sort of the the slow growth of new things happening right like a new country store that wasn't there when I was there <laughs> you know before and things like that and that's right that make that sort of change makes me a little bit nervous um I, I sort of think that when I think about Door County, it's a it's a series of, of villages um, surrounded by, you know, green, either agriculture or, you know, great state parks, things like that. And that's where, where the value proposition is, right? These, yeah. you know, you got your Ephraims near Bailey's Harbors, and then you also are, you know, close access to some amazing parks. So when you sort of see the development along like 42 start to creep out of those villages and become more linear, um, that's, that's when I get worried about sort of when we start losing sort of like the door countiness of it all. Right. And it starts, you know, so that's, that was sort of the biggest thing. I'm like, wow, like we're starting to see more, more of that type of development. Yeah. I definitely, I think about that every day when I drive to be between different villages and you see something sprout up and you're like, Whoa, could we just, could we keep it focused in these core areas and <laughs> leave this? But part of that is land values and, and farming just isn't, uh, the, the value proposition and it, it never has been a great one, but it's. Yeah, even worse yeah. now. So then I actually think that's a big risk for the county long term is like, you know, if farmers don't have a way to make it. That is sort of what preserves what we think of as the Door County, the look and style. We, yeah. we under underestimate the role that farming and agriculture plays. And each time mm -hmm. it becomes harder to do, you see orchards become second uh, seasonal homes or condominiums instead of yeah. the orchard. That is what be, has shaped the landscape for so long. I mean, imagine, imagine Fish Creek without Lauten Box at, at the entry. Yeah. Line. And that's, and that's, that's sort of like the residential side of that same, you know, I was thinking about this sort of the commercial growth along the highways, but then the, you see that like the rural residential growth yep. and that's what we call in California is like exurban development, like mm -hmm. beyond the suburbs. Like, and I know for a fact, like I know people in Sturgeon Bay who cannot wait to retire and get like 40 acres up the County and like have build their like house, right. Like retire, like even, yep. you know, local, and that's true for people in Chicago too. Like the idea of just taking 20 or 40 acres, you know, in, in Door County and, and living on that is it's great. And it can be compatible with sort of a rural agrarian like aesthetic that we're, we want to have. But also it, it piece by piece sort of takes away from like our true agricultural heritage. And it sort of creates this sort of new sort of rural sprawl. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I get worried about that as well and making sure that we sort of keep that hemmed in or at least sort of have a uh, door County has like a policy, a cohesive, coherent policy around that as opposed to sort of ad hoc. Like, yeah, maybe this is OK here, but we're not going to say it it's okay here. You know, there just needs to be sort of like well thought through plans about exactly what we want. I say we, cause I mean, I haven't lived there in 20 years, but I do sort of feel like my sisters haven't been here for 25 years and they still like, this is, <laughs> they still say we. Yeah. You know? So, okay. So I can say we, uh, <laughs> so making sure that, you know, we're growing in a way that, you know, door County is going to feel like door County 20 years from now, 25 years from now. Um, and it, it takes a certain level of vision. And I think that's what really, I mean, that's sort of the value proposition of planning. That's why we do planning, right? So when you have these big name developers, you know, with a lot of money coming in, you know, you have a plan. So you can just right. be like, well, this, this conforms to our plan. So yes, you can do it. Or no, we've decided as a community that we don't want that kind of development here. So we're going to say no. And it's a very clear way to do it. And a planning commission then can just point to the plan and say, it's not according to our, this is not in accordance with our plan. So we're not going to say yes. You know, I, I mean, it's not that simple. I don't want to simplify it to that level, but you know, having a strong plan based on a community vision um, is a good first step. I thought Emily Pitchford, who is a plan commission member in a, the village of Egg Harbor, had one of my favorite lines that I've heard at a public meeting and where a developer was asking, they presented a plan and they were asking for a variance um, and special development re relief for this condominium project. And after some debate and hearing some feedback from the village, he, they, he eventually said, you know, I really just need some guidance on 
what you want us to do. I'd really like your feedback on different aspects of this. And eventually Emily Pitchford said, isn't that what our zoning is? You have the guidance. We have this huge plan that we spent a ton of time on and as a community came up with our zoning. That is our guidance. Like we don't owe you another level. We are considering giving you some extra. Like that's what you're applying for. But we don't need to tell you like, otherwise, why do we have zoning? <laughs> so I thought I was like, it, 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 sometimes we get lost yeah. because I think these commissioners and these plan commissions and the committees and the village boards, they feel this pressure that they have to acquiesce, that they have to make it feasible because they, you know, they all, they, and many times they know these people. Um, mm -hmm. Many yeah. times they're thinking of their own property and what they're going to do with it in the future and what possibilities will be out there. And yep. the, the other thing, it was uh, Nate Bell and Sister Bay had said to one developer at one point, our job is not to assure the profitability of your business decision. Like you made this decision. We don't have to like modify our zoning because you won't make money. Then you purchase the property under the existing zoning that we have, and you're asking for something special. So we can't, we have to put your business decision to the side. That's for you to deal with. Ours is our, our thing to deal with is the community, which I think we, we lose sight of that a lot um, in these committees and on our, on our boards. Yeah, it's and it's a it's not it's not the fault necessarily of the people again who are on the commissions or the no. folks who are making these decisions because it's a certain small town mentality and I don't mean small town in a pejorative way like it just means that like for a long time like you said it would be like very one off projects that would come through right so like you could sort of give this sort of a more uh, holistic look and maybe it's a lot more of like yes I know you and we've talked about this you know. But as you guys in Door County start seeing more and more development, it becomes less feasible also to sort of think about these things in one-off decisions. And right. again, pointing to the plan and saying like, this is why we have the plan because, you know, we can't be doing this sort of like, you know, give you special favors and then look at this project and maybe figure out a special thing for you. Like it's, it becomes untenable. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, hopefully that people are pointing to the plan more and more as development occurs and not just because of plans are good, uh, but also because it just becomes you know it, you can't keep doing it that way i'm curious if i think you've uh, done videos on this too uh is like, like you mentioned like sister sturgeon bay having more multifamily housing being built and obviously in california there's been a huge problem because the the pushback against multifamily housing in especially in wealthier areas in many cities particularly san francisco has mm -hmm. that's the, one of the big driving factors in why there isn't affordable housing in Door County, there's the, a, a bit of that as well. And there's, you know, in Sister Bay, it's been a reluctance to allow multifamily housing in some of these uh, zoning districts. I, I guess when people talk housing, they're just like, well, build cheaper, build this stuff. But maybe talk about the role that zoning plays and single family housing zoning plays in um, our inability to create affordable housing. Yeah, so most cities in the United States and I'd probably say most towns and villages and places like Door County, a majority of the land is, at least certainly the residential land, but maybe the all land as a whole is zoned for R1 single family residential, right? Like, uh, and in that, in that case, um, again, every zoning code might be a little bit different, but it, generally speaking, you're only permitted to build a single family house in that zone by right. Um, so that is incredibly restrictive. Um, and it's increasingly sort of, out of sync with say like the households that we're seeing today, for example, like it made sense maybe in the fifties when everybody was getting married and having four kids. Um, but now that's not the case. Um, there's a wide variety of different household types. There are also a wide variety of different income brackets, right? There's folks who maybe don't want to pay for a full size house, uh, but will be just fine in a two bedroom condo or apartment. Um, so we're looking now at in California, I guess, uh, at ways to break the stranglehold of single family zoning and make it so that there's a, a wider variety of housing types within that zone. So, for instance, we just passed a law, um, the, the legislature just passed a law that basically makes it much easier to split lots in two hmm. um, so that where there was one house, there can now be two houses. Um, and when you couple that with recent laws around accessory dwelling units, like granny flats in the backyard or, or mm -hmm. garage conversions, uh, what once, you know, five, 10 years ago could only have one house can now have as many as four or more uh, on the same lot. So um, effect effectively, 
single family zoning in California no longer exists. Everywhere in California, uh, you basically can put at least uh, another house. Hmm. Now that that doesn't mean that everybody in California is building a second house on their lot. Of course, right? Like that is not happening. But uh, it's one of the many things that California is trying to do piece by piece to solve our housing affordability problem. And it's something that I think does actually transfer well to a place like Door County. I know it's Door County is not California <laughs> in any stretch <laughs> of the imagination, but um, but the housing affordability issues are actually becoming more nationwide uh, and sure. even in places like Door County. I mean, Door County is a desirable place to live, but also has a ch- challenge where uh, finding workforce housing is is a as a problem because wages are generally fairly low. Um, so, you know, having that affordable place to live is, is tough. So I, I like the, the, the focus around ADUs around lot splitting. It's all a subsection of what's called missing middle housing, right? Mm. So there's single family homes and you have like apartment buildings, but in between there are things like townhomes, uh, cottage courts and cottage clusters, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes. And what the whole point of missing middle housing is, uh, you know, a duplex often fits in with a single family neighborhood so well, you might not even know that it's a duplex like yeah. on per- first glance, right? Like there's ways to do multifamily housing that actually makes it feel totally like a single family neighborhood, keeps the character, which I know uh, folks are worried about, right? Protects their property values, but also allows for different housing types. So that's what a lot of this focus has been on is this missing middle housing. And I think it's a great fit for every everywhere, including Door County. I, I love that, that phrase, the missing middle, because it, I, again, I found, saw that in one of your videos, but it's something that we don't have here. And I remember when my, my oldest sister was um, kind of getting her st- start in adulthood in Ellicott City outside of uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And yep, I'm familiar. Mm-hmm. that her first house was a townhome, a three-story, but it, mm-hmm. pretty tight, pretty compact, literally built like side by side to every building next to it. But it was a foot in the door for home ownership. And that's not like, you know, for most people, that's not your ideal lifetime home, but it was, all right, we get a little equity. We live here for three years. It's affordable, but it, and it's a house. And then we graduate into something else down the road. And that really doesn't exist in on any sort of scale in Door County, unless you're looking at condos, which generally are built to maximize the dollar value of them. And they're, they're built with views. And a lot of these young people, the working class people here, we don't necessarily want the view. We just need the house. Yeah. And so, yeah. but there's not a lot of places that allow for that, that type of build in, even in our denser villages like Sister Bay. So if you could build what people build for, for condos, for views, but build that for workers, you could go a long way. I mean, I think, you know, obviously Sturgeon Bay is probably the, the, the area with the most housing and probably the most affordable housing, but you run into the challenge of, you know, uh, yeah, a lot of people live, want to live and work further up the county um, and there shouldn't they shouldn't have to rely on commuting from Sturgeon Bay to do that right mm-hmm. uh, I think one of the ways that you can sort of pitch this in some ways is this is a traffic problem yeah if you're, every day you're having people commuting from Sturgeon Bay up to I mean I did this I lived in Sturgeon Bay I worked up I worked at the Landmark I worked at uh, <laughs> Cana Island right like you go have to drive up yeah. to go do that um, and you know you're stuck in traffic but of course when you're stuck in traffic you also are traffic contributing <laughs> to everybody else's traffic and you want people to live closer to where they work and, you know, there needs to be some additional housing built in Sister Bay and Ephraim somewhere um, where folks can get to their jobs without causing all this traffic on a very limited set of routes up the county. So I think, you know, it's all related. I always say transportation is land use, right? Physically, it is land mm-hmm. use and land use is all about transportation. And this is intertwined. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for sort of arguments to make, I mean, traffic is actually a great one um, in, in sort of reducing traffic. Well, but, especially in, in Door County, we've seen the, the recent census showed that Door County population grew by eight and a half percent. And in Northern Door County, yeah. it grew by almost 12%. Most of that growth was in Northern Door County. That's a lot more people mm-hmm. driving around. Yeah. It's yeah. not just the tourists. It's not just those people from outside. It's not just, you know, to use the term most people use up here, fibs. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it, is, yeah. it is us too. It's our residents. There's just more of us. It brings me to an, another topic is, you know, in the village of Ephraim, they were considering a housing proposal. And, you know, you've talked about cycling. We've touched a little bit on parking, and I want to go into that a little bit more, and a little bit of housing and the lack of housing. And there was a proposal in Ephraim in which the person proposing this was trying to limit the amount of space for this affordable housing project that would be devoted to parking. Because the idea was that these people would live and work in the village and could ride bikes or walk to work. And it was, it was in the core, and people were saying, well, we don't want to use the core for housing. And they said, well, then you're going to have cars. 
And then there was actually an argument against this because, well, you're saying all these people are going to be on bikes and that's just going to make it so much more dangerous to have more bikes on the road. So it's just kind of funny the the built in ingrained thing in our head that the bike is dangerous, but the car is the safe thing. Yeah. But then it, which takes you to parking and parking is a big thing in Door County because I think a lot of people here are just used to getting in their car 10 feet from their front door and driving their car 10 feet from the front door of wherever they want to go. So any sort of walk from their car or walk any, anywhere to a business becomes a parking problem when in my mind, and especially once I moved to a city, but even just living up here, that's short of being infirm or handicapped. That is not a problem in, in my mind. Yeah. I wonder what do you, what about the role of parking minimums and, and the role that our, our ingrained design around vehicles and around parking and how that kind of hurts our neighborhoods and our communities. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, you're right. When you live in a place like Door County or Sturgeon Bay, you do have this, you sort of anticipate there'll always be a parking spot for you. And then I think that if you start um, developing parking policies where that may not always be the case, or you have to like search for parking or like wait for a space to open up all of a sudden that's like, that's like big city living <laughs> sort of like encroaching <laughs> on the door County. Like all of a sudden, like having ample parking becomes like a small town characteristic, right? Like part of like the small town feel, um, which is not good, right? Like we don't <laughs> we want to separate parking from that experience, but I, I mean, so yeah, so parking minimums are generally in the planning world considered to be a bad thing. Um, and, and the funny thing is, you know, it's, it's, we should really let the market decide, right? Like the, the developers themselves have a pretty good understanding of how much parking they should build, uh, how much parking they should include for the type of units that they're, they're, they're building. I mean, they do market studies. They sort of have, a, a, you know, prospective buyers in mind. Um, so when a city or county sort of imposes a parking minimum, oftentimes that is to prevent uh, spillover effects, right? So they don't want... They want to ensure that there's enough parking on site for the folks who are using that site. And so people don't park in adjacent parking lots and, right. you know, sort of get people angry. But there are places definitely in Door County where you're you're not going to see sort of dramatic spillover effects, right? I mean, if you're going to build like a housing complex and it's maybe a little bit outside of town or something, like there's nowhere else to park, right? Yeah. So you can sort of have, you can get rid of parking minimums and just assume that the developer knows how many parking spaces to, you know, build for those units. Um, parking's expensive. Um, park, even, even surface parking takes up land, takes up, uh, you know, it costs money to build and maintain, especially in Door County where you have to like to repave every so often do the freeze thaw cycle. So, uh, in that, that, um, cost gets baked into the housing prices, right? So the more housing, you, the more, par- the more parking that you plan for really are the higher prices you're going to get. So there's sort of an affordability angle here. I mean, the parking again is, I mean, the great thing about city planning is everything's related to everything else. <laughs> but, you know, when you're talking about parking, you're talking about things like housing affordability too. Um, so, uh, you know, my, my theory on this is in, unless there's a, a really, really pressing need to ensure that there's no spillover effects, um, you know, let the market decide, get rid of the parking minimums and let the developers do what they do best and, and know their market. But that's just me, I guess. <laughs> well, and what are, like you talk about the drawbacks, like, parking has a cost. And, and I don't think a lot of people think about like, well, if you take more land and it has to go to parking, that's going to take, that adds to the price of like, if, if it's going to parking, it means it can't be housing, which increases the price of the overall project that you have to mm-hmm. charge for rent to justify the project. Um, and it's, it takes away property tax base because you're lowering the value of that property. Or in, in the case of the town of Gibraltar, they built a huge parking lot um, because they believe there's a, a huge parking problem. And you're losing the potential for that whole lot space to be taxable value that could go toward building a bike lane or <laughs> making better sidewalks or planting some trees. Yeah. And even if you don't like want to see more development, right? Even if you're like, well, I don't care if there's parking there cause I don't want more housing. I mean, you're literally then paving paradise and putting up a parking lot. All right. To, <laughs> to quote the song, right? Like, y- yes, maybe you, you don't, they're not gonna put housing there, but uh, certainly a parking lot is worse than like trees or natural space or whatever makes door County great. Right. Like you're sort of taking that away little by little parking space by parking space. Well, like one of the more depressing things to me is just to drive because most of these parking lots sit mostly empty most of the year, especially in door County yeah. where we have, you know, a limited season, six months tops, but even in Surgeon Bay, a city of 10,000 people year round mm-hmm. residents, you drive through there. That Walmart parking lot is largely empty. 
Most of that pavement is not even full of cars. Econo Foods, same thing. Nightingale across the street, empty all day long because they're not open during the day. And you can go mm -hmm. the old, um, the old pick and pick and save, save a buck parking lot and the old yeah. Pomida parking lot. They all just, there's huge swaths of pavement and they make the mm -hmm. neighborhood less desirable. Um, so at a minimum, I'd say like, would someone plant some trees around these parking lots so it just didn't look like this massive piece of asphalt? Yeah, and, and if you're in a, at a, the village scale, you, you need to sort of think about this temporarily, right? Like you're like the time frame, right? Like in some cases, you know, uh, some places the parking lot will be used primarily during the day, during business hours. Yeah. Um, and but if it, in a residential situation, a lot of the times it's more packed in the evenings when people are home from work, mm -hmm. right? So you can find these syntheses. And that's why things like mixed use development is often really great because you can actually sort of reduce the overall parking that you'd have as opposed to having them separate because on the same property, um, you know, you can say, well, okay, we're going to, we're going to put enough parking spaces for businesses during the day, but then also homes at night. And yes, if you were to have like both things at the same time, there wouldn't be enough parking, but we're thinking about this smart and in using the parking spaces all the time. Um, so that's, that's one of the benefits of mixed use development. Um, so we should mandate that every place put housing on the second story. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. And, and honestly, like that's great. So that's called vertical mixed use. Uh, and, and the more urban, the more likely that is to happen. But I've seen uh, horizontal mixed use work well, where you have mm. a larger parcel and you have a, a business over here and just right next door, you have housing, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be the stacked situation, um, but it can still work. Um, you know, and I know, yeah, sometimes the, the vertical mixed use either is not in keeping with the character of the, the community or there's like, it's more expensive. There's not demand for it, but we can still do it horizontally. Like there's no <laughs> excuse not to do mixed use on some way or shape or form. And that's what, uh, most of the small towns and, and Sturgeon Bay is something that we've lost that I don't think we, we think about as much as we should is even in the eighties and nineties, if you drove through the downtowns or like in my case, taking the school bus to Gibraltar high school you usually stopped a lot in the village cores because mom and pop owned a business downtown and they lived upstairs. So your housing and your, you had that kind of built in without planning that you had mixed use because that's how people in these mm -hmm. small towns developed. Now it has become the case where the school buses generally rarely stop in the downtown areas because it's all mm -hmm. just businesses and the people live elsewhere. So you've lost sort of that mix. You've lost that ingrained housing above the business kind of thing. So the, the core people who work in that business no longer live on site, which we probably can't go back to that. I, I don't mean to speak of this just in like a whimsical, oh, if we had that, that'd be great. But people yeah. aren't going to live in their business anymore. But you could have seasonal housing as part of those businesses. And that's something that it's too bad we weren't thinking mm -hmm. about that 20 years ago because so much has been built that that are missed opportunities for that. Yeah. And again, I come back to traffic, too. If you had some if you were living over your own store the commute is none is like going downstairs. Right. Uh, and now if we're, I mean, I, again, I, I just, there's a certain culture in door County among residents. I think that you want to live out in nature and you want to live away from the, the city. Um, but you're just contributing to traffic and door County traffic 20 years ago when I was living there was bad, <laughs> right? Like in the summers, at least right during the, during the tourist season. And it's easy to blame the tourists, but if door County residents continue to this pattern of deciding that they want to also commute out, uh, you know, it's, you're only making it the life worse for yourself as well. You are traffic when you are driving, <laughs> uh, you know, and I think there's that self-awareness that needs to happen. And, you know, it, it is funny you mentioned these policies. What, what do we do? We, we come into work and, and we all gather in the office or get to the restaurant or whatever. And we come in from our cars and we say, gosh, can you believe the traffic? There's just so much, this is just ridiculous. Like, like you just said, you were the traffic. You were <laughs> the other cars yeah. were saying that about you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and again, it's like finite resources, right? Land is a finite resource, but also roads are a finite resource. I mean, you can widen roads to an extent, uh, but that only induces more traffic, right? Like the, yeah. those lanes will get filled up. Like, and there are only so many routes through the county. I mean, the, you know, you're not going to be adding new county roads left and right. That's just not practical. <laughs> it's not cost effective. Um, so there's a finite lane space. And we need to be thinking about it. If 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 we're going to see a population continue to grow at eight percent or higher, uh, and all these new developments come in, well, how are we going to be practical about keeping cars off the roads? I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's not even so. You know, you can appeal to folks who are maybe not into bikes and pedestrians. Uh, you know, through this sort of traffic. Uh, angle, right? Like maybe you're not going to get out of your car, but if you can convince five of your friends to do it, your, your traffic's going to be better and everybody's going to be like, kind of living their better life. So, yeah. you know, I get nervous about traffic for sure when it comes to Door <laughs> County. 
Well, Dave, um, I've kept you for about an hour here late on a Tuesday night, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I like as our listeners, and, and you can probably tell, I, I'm pretty fascinated by this. It, it, it's going to make a, you know, I'm 43, and much of the town, I'm I'm going to be here, so I'm going to see the effects of ever, all these decisions we make or don't make, and you know, every little thing we get right is something that's right. From um, when you're talking about these issues, it's something that changes things for 20 to 30 years, um, mm-hmm. if we're lucky. So. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and I encourage anybody to go and, and check out your videos because they are really informative and they're actually entertaining. So it's not as boring as maybe some of my articles writing about it are. Well, that's great. Yeah. And I mean, uh, for all the dissecting I've done of Door County planning and Door County, I, I remain bullish on Door County's prospects. I mean, I still absolutely love Door County. I love Sturgeon Bay. And I think, um, you know, with just a modicum of, of smart planning and some forward thinking. Uh, I think that that sort of lifestyle that we all love about Door County can be preserved for future generations. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. I'm excited to make my return visits every summer and, and see how it changes. So thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been great to talk about it. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at the Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.